Hey everyone, welcome to the Higher Points Podcast. I'm Nick Sowers here in the studio with my buddy Nate Hyatt. And today we have uh, my father, uh, Alvin Sowers Jr. on the podcast. Uh, you remember the podcast with my grandfather, Alvin Sowers Sr. And uh, so I just wanted to have him come on. He's got a uh, plethora of life experience through law enforcement as well as training law enforcement. And then some personal endeavors that he'll get into with uh, becoming a private pilot and things like that. So... Uh, first things first, just want to say thanks for taking the time to come on here. I know you were a, a little reluctant at first. No problem. <laughs> um, but, uh, I guess we just kind of start with, you know, just basically where were you born, your family, you know, where did you go to school, that kind of stuff, and then kind of go from there. So I was born here in Hutchinson, Kansas, and went to school for seven years through my seventh grade year here in Hutchinson. My mom and dad moved me to Lyons for him to, my dad to take a job up there. I graduated high school at Lyons High School. I stayed. They moved back to Hutch. Um, so when you say you stayed, is that did you did you move into the house on Taylor? Like, is that was that yours? And then like mom moved. Yeah, in my or? first my first house of my own moving out of my parents' house was the house on Taylor, and into the house that I live in now. Which that would be a cool story of like how how you got the house that you live yeah, in. Yeah, we can that we would, can talk that about would that. Be, that would be a, good a cool one. story. Um, so, so just to make sure that I'm telling this story right. Okay. So you were a law enforcement officer in Lyons when you met mom, like, right? Yes. Okay. And then you met mom at Daylight Donuts, right? Is that where you guys She first? was working the night shift making the donuts. Okay. So. And so mom was also a reserve officer in Sterling at the time. Not at the time, but shortly thereafter. Okay. So my two cop parents met in a donut shop, basically. That's a true statement. How, how cliche. It is. Okay, cool. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm telling, I'll tell that story correctly every time I tell the story of how and my you, parents you met. You never had a donut till you had one right out of the fryer. I'll have to tell you that. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'll tell you, there was nothing better as a kid than like we would go to daylight donuts every morning with my mom. Uh, as a matter of fact, I slammed my finger in the car door the very first time behind daylight donuts because I distinctly remember that. But, uh, yeah, sitting, sitting on the shelf at Daylight Donuts, those smells plus, uh, like a fresh donut right out of the fryer. Whew. Like it. That's, that's, that's some good stuff right there. Maybe that's why I became a cop too. That's what, Maybe. that's what started it all. That's a true love story. <laughs> um, so, uh, so if, if we back up to, you know, you graduated Lions High School and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so based back then, you could be a law enforcement officer at 18, right? That is true. And so what I guess, you know, it's definitely very different. You know, grandma, grandma came from a farming background and granted she, she worked in the court. So, I mean, she's, there was still a little bit of a law enforcement background there. Um, well, I guess one thing I've never really asked you is what turned you on. I mean, grandpa's, grandpa's personality and your personality when it comes to, you know, grandpa is kind of risk averse and, you know, law enforcement is definitely very much a risky profession. So I guess what, uh, what made, what drew you to law enforcement? So I think, uh, what drew me is when I was a kid, I used to watch the show emergency, which was firefighters and paramedics. And I really, really enjoyed that show. And I think ultimately I wanted to be a fireman may not have known that, but, um, as I went through and, and didn't really know what I wanted to do in high school yet through my junior year, uh, one day in, in history class, the school counselor came in and he was pretty nonchalant about it. Just threw up a brochure that said, 
Hey, if anybody wants to go to the Cadet Lawman Program, the Highway Patrol and the American Legion put on a program for students that are between their junior and senior year, we can go up and learn a little bit about law enforcement. And literally, I turned to my buddy who sat behind me and said, we ought to go to that. And so we both applied and we both were granted, which was kind of unusual in a small town to get two sponsorships. But we ended up both going to the Cadet Lawman Program between my junior and senior year. Um, I knew during that week of time I spent there that this is exactly what I wanted to do for a career. And he knew exactly he didn't want to do that for a career. <laughs> and uh, he became an engineer. So uh, so I guess explain a little bit of the Cadet Lawman program. Like who puts – I mean, you said KHP and American Yeah, the American Legion, Legion but- I think, is the financial backing. And then the, the Highway Patrol – puts on the facilitates it at the highway patrol facility and by the way you wouldn't even know where that was at because at that time it was out by the airport in a round top that was buried in the ground basically and that was the highway patrol academy and at that time they brought in a little bit of everybody they brought in salina pd salina sheriff's department kbi wildlife and parks the gaming commission well, at that time, it would have been administrative or alcohol beverage um, oh, so control. Gaming, con- gaming, gaming commission was did, under that. Well, gaming didn't exist at that point because there was no gambling at all in Kansas. So like, you got a little taste. Plus, I mean, the patrol put their stuff on. You got a little taste of what all those folks did. Um, we went out and shot um, 22 pistols on the range. We drove the cars on the driving course. We flew in the airplane to run radar from the airplane, and that was pretty cool. I did know at that point that I didn't want to be a highway patrolman. Um, the city officer sounded pretty good to me. So you said you didn't want to be uh, a trooper. Why was that? Like, what 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 turned you off about that? I mean, there's there's tons of like career paths you can th- take inside. I think I like the investigation part a whole lot more than like traffic, where a city officer could still do some traffic because I think that was fun. I did a lot of traffic. But I also like the idea of being able to do investigative work. Oh, okay. Um, so I guess let's let's back up a little bit, too. There's a part that I know. Like there was a gentleman that was on Lyons Police Department that was a little influential to you that kind of helped also push you into law enforcement. Um, that well, now his great-nephew works Lyons PD. So kind of a little bit of a full I circle say there. He's a great nep- he wasn't a great influence, but he he made me decide – that that's the way I wanted to treat people. And uh, his name was Skip Nichols. I was in the eighth grade and I had a mini bike. And I would ride that mini bike from my house around the ball field, down the alley and across the street up into my buddy's house. And he'd ride his motorcycle to my house. And I did it one morning in the summer. And that's all city property. So um, all the licensing requirements and lighting requirements on a vehicle apply. Well, he happened to see me and didn't even have to stop, didn't even turn the red lights on, didn't even get out of the car. Skip was a uh, Harlem Globetrotters, one of the original Globetrotters. I think he, if I remember right, he was about 6'7 or 6'8. Had a tough time getting in and out of the car, so he didn't do that much. He didn't have to. (laughs) And that was towards the end of his career. So he was, you know, I think age and all the athletics caught up with him as well. He, uh, he made a very clear point of the eight violations that I committed during that time frame. And, of course, I was scared to death. Just 
just to be frank about that. <laughs> and he knew my mom worked in the court, and he told me that you have the lunch hour to tell your parents about this event, and I'm going to be in her office at 1 o'clock to talk to her. And you can share your side of the story with her. And that's one of the times of my life I learned that own up to your mistakes and take the punishment that comes with that and move on. And I did share that with my parents a little lunch hour. He did show up at 1 o'clock, and he did not write me any tickets. He was convinced my mother could take care of it pretty doggone well, which, by the way, she did. (laughs) (laughs) And although the punishment wasn't near as bad as I thought it was going to be, but part of it's because I owned my mistake. And I always treated young children that were making mistakes in my career the same way. Yeah, I I do the same thing. I mean, I I would definitely say that. And and I guess it's also very situational, too. Just because you're a youngster doesn't necessarily always mean that you're going to get that. I mean... If if you're a youngster that continually messes up, and then also you, I know that your family's not going to help hold you accountable, then you know I may use the criminal justice system. But I can't tell you how many times I have called or text messaged again, being in a small town, and said, "Hey, you know your kid did X Y Z. I'll let you handle it." And Derek was that way too. He goes, "Hey, this is a parenting issue. You need to let this be parented." So if we back up again just a little bit. Or I guess now we, now we fast forward. So back, back in, and when you first started in law enforcement, that was a different than the way it is now. It was a highly sought after career. I mean, it was, it was, it was more significantly more competitive as far as getting into it and, you know, people applying and stuff like that, right? That would be correct. There, the vacancies that are out there in law enforcement today were not there. And so, so there was kind of a process in Lions of, of getting, to a full-time spot, which started from my understanding of listening to you guys at break. It was like you kind of started on the merchant patrol or that was a good way to kind of get your foot in the door to get to know the guys, the merchant patrol. And then you would move maybe to like a reserve or a part-time spot, at which point then maybe you would move into a full-time spot. For well, that's how some of them did that. That's not how the path that I took. Okay. I, uh, I started my senior year of figuring out how to get on the police department. And asking questions. And I went in and met with the chief. At the time, it was Dennis Luck. And I met with him and told him of my interest. And he said, I can put you on as reserve. I don't have any full-time spots available. But if you want to work as reserve. And at the time, that worked out perfect for me. Because I was also going to college for criminal justice. That followed that next two years of my, you know, after graduating from high school. So that worked out perfect for me to just do the reserve work, which means I didn't get paid. I just came in. Usually I, for the first year and a half of my career, I rode with somebody every time I was out. So I was on the job training. So you still had all the same law enforcement, quote unquote, power under the law. You just weren't getting paid, right? Correct. Um, so, so how did that, how did that conversation go with grandpa when you were telling him you wanted to be a cop, grandpa and grandma? My mom was all for it. My dad was less than impressed. <laughs> I, I remember a father that was the same way. Mostly, and my, my less than impressed with you was different because I know the job and I knew the headaches and I knew the heartache and the shift work and the holidays and I knew all the headaches that went with it where my dad was just said, 
I don't believe you have the guts to do that. I don't know why you would want to walk up on a car. Well, and also, didn't he also have, like, when you wanted to buy your first gun, because you needed a gun, obviously, that, that wasn't there also some contention there? And there, and what was that? Do you remember? So, 357. Is that the one that got stolen? Yes. Okay. No wonder you were so salty about that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, it was a, it was a, I'm assuming it's Smith & Wesson. Yes. Was it a wheel gun? Yes. Um, and, and how did, did, were you letting, you were letting somebody borrow it or something? Is that how yes. that worked? And then like a flooring company, a guy at a flooring company stole it? Yes. Okay. And it's no longer entered in NCIC? That's what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten a call about a validation lately? Oh, don't think I ever got one. Yeah. So that's why it's not in NCIC I anymore. Know. So, did you ever have any issues? Like, I mean, did you did you also have an issues considering you know, where I was going to work and who I was maybe going to be working for? Did you have issues there as far as like the leadership or anything? Me to you, yeah, right. When you went in yeah. law enforcement, not really. Okay, it was really about it doesn't law enforcement as you as you well know now. Law enforcement's not a great money maker. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your family, and. uh there was just, I thought there were better opportunities and you were very interested in the computer world. And I thought that's the direction you were going. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's not how that worked. And actually, I'm kind of glad it didn't because now that I see the people that do work in the computer world, I mean, I think it's pretty much any profession where you are good at what you do. I so, mean, I'm sure Nate can attest, you know, when you're good at what you do, everybody seeks you and you're mm-hmm. busy beyond what you can possibly get so, done. We're jumping way ahead, and, and we may want to talk about this more later, but I got a degree in computer information systems um, in 2009, and all I learned out of that was I do not want to work on people's <laughs> computers because you can't please them, yep. and I had uh, nothing to do with it. Glad I got the education, but I had no desire to work on computers. That That is the one thing I like about the customer service side of law enforcement is you're, you're expected to be courteous and professional and have integrity. But, you know, when when it's nice as a law enforcement officer to be able to say, be quiet or you're going to jail. And you can't do that in customer service jobs. I right. Mean, <laughs> uh, so there, there is a nice there is the nice side of that with law enforcement. Um, so, uh, OK, so you you start out as a reserve and then were you going to college during that yes. time? And so I was were going you- to Barton County Community College to their criminal justice program. And didn't they have like security on campus there too? So they were, weren't you? Yeah, I, that's how I funded, uh, my education is I worked full time security. So I would go to school on Monday throughout the day. I would work day shift while I was going to school because I was a swing shift person. And then I would work, go to school Tuesday and Wednesday. And then during the day, and then I'd work evening shift. Then I would, Go to school Thursday and Friday and work night shifts. So I one day, two nights, and two two evenings and two nights. <laughs> so you got the full taste of what swing shifts that, were that before was, you started. Well, that's when I was uh, eighteen and nineteen, so it was Easy a whole lot easier. But it still was a challenge. I wouldn't want to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> but that's how I funded my college. I did that for a year. What What did you uh, What did you major in? Criminal justice. Oh, okay. So did you actually get a criminal justice degree from that? I have an associate in criminal justice. So, you know, I just I just put two and two together here, and, and I don't know why I didn't think of this, but you realize that you, I literally followed, and how I always tell you I don't want to, I don't want to ride your coattails. I literally followed everything. Like I, granted, I didn't get a degree in criminal justice, but I have an associate's degree from Barton County Community College. 
Yep. And then I have my four-year degree from Friends University. Same thing as you. So you got one more to go. I just put, no, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if I want a master's degree. I, I'm, I'm quite happy where I'm at now. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. And if I did, I would totally be getting an MBA. That's Again, what I get it getting in. ahead of the, the story, but I'll, I'll share with how my master's paid off for me. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, so um, after Barton County Community College, you move into Lions PD full-time. How did Actually, that, how did before, that work out? Before I finished Barton County, um, in November of 82, I was three quarters of the way through my associate degree and they had an opening. I should probably share how I kind of got that position. I I went in and worked, started working the second year of college. I worked full time at the jail as a jailer. And there was only one jailer in Rice County and it was an evening shift. Other than that, everybody booked their own prisoners. <laughs> so I was working the jail, still working reserve, and somebody didn't show up on the shift for Lions PD, and the chief asked the sheriff if I could come out and work that shift. And <laughs> what I uh, I have what? no idea. The sheriff did not want me working for the PD at the time. Who was the sheriff at the time? Bill Thompson. Okay, I never did meet him that I know of, and he agreed. So I went out and worked the shift. And I went into the chief no the next way. day. And see, Bill had left the PD to be sheriff. He was our sergeant. And he left PD to be sheriff, so that opened the position. And I went in after I worked that shift and told the chief, I said, I really want that job. And he hired me. So I started working. Uh, so did the person that not showed up, did they, since they no called, no showed? Was there a spot open then? or No, no. This was, he just, he went to a funeral and he oh, got okay. the wires crossed on whether he was approved off or not so okay. it was all good okay got it so uh the chief said okay we'll hire you and since i was still going to school i worked three to eleven constantly that way i could go to school during the day and i at the time i was my last semester of barton county i had enough hours cumulative that i only had to go to class one hour a day <laughs> every every uh every day i had to go to class at one and so i i got back home with about 2.35, got in uniform and went to work. That is insane. Could you imagine in today's law enforcement age of just pulling someone out of the jail and throwing them on the street? That That is insane to me. Well, remember, I'd been a reserve at that point. Uh, uh, probably well, a year and a half. Okay, okay. I mean, but even still... I mean, that, that I guess, okay. And they called me the seat cover, by the way. I don't know if you ever heard that. <laughs> no. Because every Friday night, usually I got somebody to cover my shift at the college for security on Friday nights because I wanted to uh, go out on the street. Go out in the street. So I'd work Friday night from about three in the afternoon till six in the morning. So you, you were you were riding that hypervigilance roller coaster. Oh, oh yeah. But I, was, <laughs> but I was loving it. Um. Okay. So, so I guess, uh, so when did you actually start? So when you, when you talk about your law enforcement career, do you, do you factor in your, your time as a reserve too in, in your experience or do you just take it from when you were full time? I, I typically just save my full time. Um, so if you were to take into account the time that you started as a reserve when you were 18 to, you know, now even how many years is that? 42 years. Wow. Longer than I've been alive. That's for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, everybody always kind of likes to hear, you know, some of those, uh, those cool stories. So I guess let's start the first cool, cool story. So we talked about the house on Taylor versus the house you are now. So how did you, how did you, 
learn about the house that you have now well, and then move into it. Let's just start with one of the cases that I worked was a uh, a young couple who was struggling to meet their needs financially, and they had a land contract on a house, and the land contract was about to um, be breached. So, in an effort to find some quick cash, they went out and picked a bunch of ditch weed. Nice. And were <laughs> and the the most marijuana I've ever taken out of a house came out of the basement I now live in. <laughs> fast forward, that well, sounds well, really bad. So fast forward a year later, the house sat vacant and I figured out who the owner was and discussed that with the owner and we, we reached a land contract and I bought the house on a land contract. So, uh, I think, yeah, cause I guess that could have been bad with today's day and age of asset forfeiture. Yeah. We seized the house and I took it for myself. <laughs> no, it sat vacant for a year before I ever looked at it again. Well, but I guess also, so, I mean, what was, what was the, how did the call start? I think that's the funny part. It was, it was a domestic violence call. And, and then, and then she narks him out, yeah, right? She, she tells us that all the marijuana is down in the basement. So they legitimately had a marijuana grow. Like, was no, it the whole? It, it was all just picked that he got oh. from. And it wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't good stuff. Uh, um, and then, so I guess, so what are, I mean, any other, any other stories you can think of? I mean, the one that came to my mind that I don't know why. So that was, like, I was telling, uh, Casey Shrog the other day that one thing that I saw that was lacking from law enforcement in, in Rice County to, from what it used to be to what it is now was the camaraderie that you guys had. But keeping in mind, you guys had like three, sometimes four people out in Lions a shift and you had the call load to keep you busy. Right. And about a thousand, fifteen hundred more people than there are now in Lions. And, um, you guys would go to break in the morning, you know, break in the afternoon and then you do a nighttime break as well. And you guys would always get together. And even if you weren't working, guys were showing up off duty. Right. And going to break and telling stories and like building, building those relationships and that camaraderie, which we don't, we don't have the same now because we don't work together, like side by side, shoulder to shoulder as much as you guys did. Right. And, but that was our pass down. And and for those that don't know what pass down is, or, or if you watch TV, every shift gets together, beginning shift and you get information, intelligence. Yeah. Shift briefing. Shift briefing. And. That was how we accomplished that. We all just got together over coffee and talked about those things and went on our way. Well, I mean, it was, you know, and also the drinking age then was 18 as well, right? When I started, the drinking age was 18. It changed probably about four or five years into my career. But, I mean, I think that probably also factored into your call load as well. I mean, you had a lot more younger people getting drunk. Yes, we had lots of fights at the 3-2 bar. And so, and that's another thing too, that doesn't exist anymore is three, you don't, you know, three, two beer and Kansas doesn't. And just, that's pretty recent though. Yeah. That's recent. Uh, which I thought was, thought was interesting to me. I'm like, okay, alcohol is alcohol. They're just going to drink more to get the same effect, but whatever. Um, another feel good law. Uh, so like back then also, you know, everybody likes to call like what those, those handheld stun guns. I like to call them tasers still. But like, uh, there was like a story that you were telling me, um, and like, you know, and the, the back of your head is like a missing, a missing piece of hair, well, like a little tuft again, of we hair. Need, we need to take a step back. 
They were the, the original tasers and they were called stun guns and they were just handheld units and you didn't, they didn't deploy a cartridge. You just had to get close to your person and touch them and then hit the switch. And you could have it on them for as long as you could hold, which wasn't what we were trying to do. It's just the technology that existed at the time. And so we're amazed by these, you know, young cops and new technology. And, and their toys. And I'm working night shift one night. And we have a attempt to locate for a pretty significant crime. I can't remember. It was one of them where you, I don't know if you guys still have road barricades that you could go up if they want to set up barricades in a region. There's like Main and Grand was the barricade point. So you could, you know, that traffic's always going to cross Main and Grand in Lyons. So I was sitting in Main and Grand watching for whatever the attempt to locate was for. Bored at two in the morning. And this grasshopper had jumped up on my rear view mirror of the car. And we we did zap bugs before and they would... <laughs> They would go down and then they come back to life or they come back. So I got my shocker out and I zapped the bug. Well, the mirrors are metal. So in what that did is it shocked the bug and me and went, came back down my arm and back down into my body. So I shocked myself. And from that point on, it never really worked right. So every time I would use it, it shock whoever I was shocking, and me too. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't have it replaced? <laughs> all well, Back then, all that stuff was by you. You paid you had for to everything, right? Yourself. Yeah. I mean, you, you paid for I everything. Think, I think the department paid for those. I don't remember. Um, well, you didn't want to tell him the I story of shocking yeah. yourself. Well, yeah. <laughs> if, if, you, if you knew his boss, that's why he didn't want to tell yeah, the yeah. boss why. Yeah, probably just didn't want to share that. So, fast forward, I don't know, months, we were at a fight on the street, and my partners were dealing with the guy. They were facing him, and they, they were facing off, and I I got to jump him from behind, basically. I mean, I he didn't know I was there, so I bear-hugged him and then hit him with a shocker. Of course, it's getting him and me at the same time, and then the dog pile happened. And everybody jumped on, and I was on the bottom of the dog pile and hit my head on the curb. And, and it was lights out, wasn't it? Well, I don't think I did. But then I heard the one of the officers, one of my partners, say um, something about get that dog off of me, only use more explicitive language. Uh, yeah. And I'm going, dog, at this point, I'm paralyzed and I can't move. Now, I don't know if I'm paralyzed from hitting my head or from getting shocked or both. <laughs> Nevertheless, I can't move, and I'm going, dog. And it was, there was a Doberman pincher in the process, and I'm thinking, oh, now it's great. I can't move, and the dog's going to bite me. But he didn't. And when I, I – I mean, they came off the dog pile, and he quit fighting, and we got him handcuffed. And when I came off the dog pile, I saw blood running down my shirt. At that time, we were still wearing light blue uniform shirts. So, so that explains why the the tuft of hair is gone from the back of your head. Yeah, it's kind of grown back now. I don't think I don't find it back there anymore. Um, I I remember that story because I'd always ask my dad like what happened to the back of your head, and that was the that was the story that mm -hmm. came about. Could, but could you imagine again? You know, the DRE inside of me thinking of the brain and the neurotransmitters and all that stuff. So you got the adrenaline in your system and everything, and now you've shocked yourself, 
and you've had a trauma of smacking your head, your brain's probably going, ah! <laughs> That's probably why it was like, parallel. I don't know what to do! <laughs> so much going on! So, I had a scanner still at my mom and dad's house. It's probably the only night my mom actually was awake when I reported that I'm driving myself to the hospital for getting checked. She heard all that. <laughs> Did she call you on your cell phone? Uh, I don't think we had handheld cell phones <laughs> at that time. <laughs> I think we had may have bag phones, but we didn't have handhelds. Yeah, and then you you regretted getting a bag phone because then I'd blow it up every two seconds when I was a kid. Yes, like your, your kids kid, do to you. I would say your kids do it to you. You're getting paid back. Yeah, but my thing is, you had to pay like twenty five cents a minute. I don't. That's true. <laughs> um. Also, another thing uh, I remember is like one time we were on our way home from Hutch, and you had your portable radio with you. The same one that, that I carried when we first took over the Merchant Patrol. That same, like, big metal bricky radio. And you had it out the window. You with think that's a antenna. brick? You haven't seen a brick. Well, to be fair, the one I'm carrying now is about that same size. But, uh, vastly different technology. But I remember you holding it, like, out the window, like, trying to talk to somebody. And we were at, we were on Avenue Q at about 28th, 29th Road. And back then, there was probably only, what, maybe one repeater? I mean, and that would have been on one the Jay- and only. Jayhawk Tower. There was a point that there was no repeaters. The day we got a repeater, we were in seventh heaven because we could talk more than two miles. <laughs> and uh, Jayhawk Tower, where's that at? Jayhawk Tower would be there by the, uh, it's the it's the Kansas, the state tower by the truck washout east of Lyons. Oh, okay. It was about a mile south of that, and it wasn't near as tall. Oh. It's about half that size. Well, that's where our stuff is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that and there's there's different places around the county, but like the, that that difference in technology is, I could literally drive to Kansas City and take my portable with me and talk back to Lions on a portable radio. I mean, they're basically cell phones, mm-hmm. essentially, is what they are. Um, and so I I guess so everybody in law enforcement when they get into it, you know, obviously you're you're riding that hyper vigilance roller coaster. You're having fun. The blues are bluer. The greens are greener. It's an adrenaline rush. It's so much fun. And eventually you start to get that stress inoculation where those things are just kind of starting to be just work. You know, like when I when I hear those stories, like I've never heard about shocking the grasshopper. I never knew that that's why you were getting shocked. You start to hear those things, and to you, that's just work. It's just what I do. It's no different than Nate. Like, tell me about building a house. Nate would be like, I put some nails and some wood. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, I know it's more than that. Sorry, buddy. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just work. And so like everybody starts to get into like a niche. Like, I guess, like what was your, what, what became your niche? What became the, your, your loves, your passions inside of law enforcement? What did you do? Well, after I graduated from college, um, then I started working shift work. Um, that was in 83. They signed me up to go to the police academy, Kansas Law Enforcement Training Center, and just before I got out of college, and there was a year and a half wait to get in the academy at that point. So then I couldn't go to the academy till May of 1984. And keep in mind... I was hired full-time in November of 82. The law still was 18 to be an officer. In July 1 of 83 is when it changed to 21. Now, I still hadn't been to the academy yet. And I went in in March and April of 84. So, 
I got to work the street another year before I went to the academy. So I was writing the coattails of my college degree and then went to uh, the academy. So I had a lot of experience by the time I got to the academy, about three years. Was academy. it down yeah. here south of Yoder then? Yeah, where I work yeah. now. How, how long was the academy then? Eight weeks. So it's eight weeks, and then now it's 14. Now it's 14. Um, so so when you when you graduate and you're doing the shift work and then you get out and you've got this experience and stuff, like then what did you feel like you enjoyed and focused? Like, you know, I love DUI. You know, that was one of the things I focused on. What what were you, some of the things you focused? Or maybe even got voluntold and just got good at it. <laughs> no, I, I like working the, the shift work and the patrol calls and, and then occasionally in, in a small town like Lyons, at least the, when I was working there, that call that came on the radio was your start to finish. So you didn't turn it over to a detective. You didn't turn it over to anybody. It was your start to finish. And I love doing the follow-up investigation. Um, you know, I remember a lot of the things you were talking about that you started working, I guess, probably more towards the tail end of your career were a lot more like child abuse type cases or sexual abuse cases. Oh, actually... So I spent 19 years on the street as Lions PD in the last 12 of it. I was working child abuse cases. Um, do you have any, any experiences from there that like to pull from or talk about as far as like, you know, th- things where you felt like maybe well, actually my, made a one difference? One of my first cases was the big, one of the biggest cases of my career. And it was a child daycare, child abuse where I had a potential for 17 victims. And so we, we interviewed 17 and I think we charged on 10 of them. Wow. Um, and sex successful on that one? Yes. Was it like physical abuse or sexual abuse? Sexual abuse. Really? We went through all the, the pretrial motions, the preliminary hearings, and we were a halfway through the trial when he decided to plead. Huh. So halfway through the trial, he pled. Hopefully there was no plea deal there at that point. I mean, no. when you're halfway through the no, trial. He was, he was a very stubborn gentleman and... Did not want to give in, and there was no plea bargains, and there was even in his pre-sentence investigation, he probably could have got a pretty light sentence, but he was stubborn and and was not cordial to all the people he needed to be cordial to, including the judge, and he got pretty much a maximum sentence. <laughs> and ultimately, he was a fairly old man when he when we charged him, and he died in prison. He never came out. Huh. What is the maximum for something like that nowadays? Is um, it like per charge? You, you, I mean, you could certainly get life. Um, it was different then, Nick. It was, uh, I would say, thirteen years was the max. But I mean, he was then. he was saying today, right? Today, either way, or, yeah, um, both. Yeah, I mean, they've got new ones like Jessica's Law and stuff like that that you can, I mean, you can legit get life in prison for that kind of thing now, which is admirable because I don't think that's something that you re- rehabilitate away. Mm-mm. I, I firmly believe, but, um, so let's see, I guess, uh, another interesting case that you worked is, uh, uh, if, if you want to talk about this one is you get, you get dispatched to an unattended death. And yeah, that was the very last part of my career within the last six months of my career. You uh, got that in the last six. Can you, I can't even imagine as a law enforcement officer yeah. going, I'm getting ready to leave here. And I, I had just <laughs> really, I just finished that case when I left to go to the academy. Um, but I get dispatched an unattended death. Meals on Wheels found this guy dead. And I got there and he was a terminal cancer patient and was very elderly. 
and didn't really think much of it. No signs so, of forced entry or nope. anything that made you think anything weird? Nope. So I just worked it as an unattended death. Back before the days of you work all those deaths like a homicide until you prove differently, we didn't. So I, uh, as a stroke of luck, coincidence, however you want to put it, I ended up dispatching a couple of shifts, which I did that off and on throughout my career. And my, my boss would, would uh, they'd be short dispatchers, and he'd say, go dispatch for a week. You're the second person out on the shift. They need you. So that, That's another thing that would be I, unheard of today. I uh, thoroughly enjoy dispatching. So I, uh, I'm dispatching, and I get an anonymous call. And the caller said, what happened Last Friday, which was when I worked that case, I think this was a Sunday evening, is not right. Now, I didn't connect it at that point that that was the same call. Um, I know there were some drug units. There's a task force and drug unit in Rice County at the time, and I knew they were doing some work. And I just thought it was something to do with that. And about a half an hour later, another call came in where they said, I want to talk to the duty officer in Lyons. So um, sent the duty officer in Lyons to that call, and he came back and with a statement in his hand, a written statement, saying that my unattended death was a homicide. And I went, this is not good. Uh, What? <laughs> wasn't, his, so, his, wasn't his name, the suspect's name was John, John Hermosillo, right? Yes. How do you spell that last name? Do you remember? H E R M. S-I-L-L-O. I think that's right. I always have to think uh, through that. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so I kind of said, okay, we got to work this backwards. So I started at that point working it backwards, and we did an autopsy two days after the fact. And the information was that they stuffed a ham sandwich down his throat and suffocated him. And during autopsy, we found a ham sandwich in his throat. So to what end there? Like, why why did did he do it? So as the case progressed, um, I mean, we were the suspect was identified and some players that participated in some forged checks along with him were part of the people telling us about this event, giving us information. And the uh, forged checks... So I was working a forgery, and I was able to also make a case on the forgery. And I think he was trying to cover up the forgeries. Plus, he kind of had the attitude of Jack Kevorkian was kind of popular back then, assisted suicide gentleman. And I think he kind of uh, took on that persona. Um, and so I think the interesting part here, too, is... Uh, and you talk about this openly at the academy, at least when you were teaching some of those things. But how, how many pictures did you take during that again? Six. So you got a murder conviction off of six pictures and... One uh, one that was worth a thousand, ten thousand words. Why is that? Because a choking person does not stay in a recliner, reclined back with a blanket on top of him. Across his shoulders and neck. They would have tried to get the obstruction out by getting up and coughing. So, 
Oh, or like being on the ground. Probably it would be laying on the ground. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, the blanket would have been off. But he would, they also used a, from what I was, um, the investigation revealed, he also used a pillow to help suffocate him as well. Huh. You take a look there on the TV. That's what he looks that's like him. these, that's what he looks like these days. Yeah. He, uh, we convicted him and he got 15 years to life. He would have been, that would have been in, 2000 for the conviction and so he was eligible for parole in 2015 last i knew he was still in are you looking at it shows earliest yeah sure it shows earliest possible release dates may 17th of 24 i think uh so he's still in prison honestly knowing his uh, personality he probably wants to stay there the rest of his life that's the best home that gentleman's ever had yeah, it shows that, well, he went by John Stephen Hooks. That's yeah. his alias. Yeah, his, was that was the, John Hooks was his alias. Was that the, like, for what he would do for forgeries and stuff? He, or? he had um, different family members and took on um, those names from family histories, divorces and stuff. Huh. Well, he's been there since 2000. He didn't have a whole lot of uh, disciplinary reports. I mean, for the whole time he's been there, he's got six. And they're... Pretty small ones, other than the, the use of stimulants and sedatives. That's a pretty big one. But he's, yeah, he's been Lan- Topeka and then Lansing. That's where he's been the whole time. Yep. Hmm. Um. <clears throat> uh, so let's see here. And he's about he's a year or two younger than me, so he's he's probably fifty eight, fifty seven, somewhere in that range. Uh, let's see. Shows his date of birth is. Don't give his date of birth. It's on Casper. It's literally public information. How about this? Let's give his year. So uh, how about this? It shows he's 57. There. So that, that's better. Yeah. It's, it's literally it's literally on the internet that anybody can search. True that. Not to mention, don't murder people if you don't want your information on the internet. Okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why do we got to protect this guy's you, privacy? You kind of give up your right to privacy. <laughs> I guess it's just stuck in me all these years. <laughs> yeah, speaking of that, you want to you wanna give your name, date of birth, social security number, and everything? We'll put it out on the podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, like how you got promoted, but I want to set the stage real quick as to why this story is kind of promoted at the PD. Or yeah. Promoted, promoted at the, promoted at, at the as a sergeant at Lions okay. PD. So, um, Dennis Luck was your chief for your entire tenure, right? He was still, he yeah. was still chief when you left. Yep. You've okay. worked for five chiefs. I've worked for four. <laughs> um, so, so he, Everybody was basically terrified of Dennis as far as like he was, I mean, in the sense of you didn't want to be on his bad side. We're terrified. He just, there were days that he was wonderful and there were days that he was not in a good mood and you just wanted to stay away. <laughs> so Let's just so you, were, you were just trying to figure out like what, what day you were getting that day. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so other law enforcement officers have all told me that they were just scared of him. I mean, that they didn't, they didn't want to cross him. They didn't want to. Scared of those bad days. Yeah. And, and so, so you. Oh, I crossed him and he got a hold of me more than once. (laughs) I usually got a, I got a, in the office visit with him once a year. I'd always heard that, you know, he was famous for smashing the, smashing his cigarette down into the ashtray and stuff while he's talking. And I've witnessed that, been part of that. (laughs) Um. And, uh, so then when you go to get promoted, kind of tell that story and like how, how that all worked out to get promoted to sergeant. The one thing, one of the, his good qualities was he told you when you were on vacation, don't be up here. 
Stay away. Take a break from all this. And so I'm on vacation. I get called by the secretary. He says, you need to meet the chief and the sergeant in the office in an hour. And I'm thinking, what did I do? (laughs) What have I done to come off a vacation and go meet with the two top officers in the department? I am in trouble. And I took a shower. I walked in to the office. And he looked at me and said, relax. This isn't going to hurt. That was how much body language I was exhibiting. (laughs) What did I do? You were prepping yourself. And he promoted a sergeant to lieutenant and me to sergeant. Didn't know it was coming. Didn't do any. He never made that announcement that that was coming. He just did it. One so day. there was no like formal application process or anything no like testing. that? No testing. We just did it. <laughs> so so the sergeant at the time would have been Detmer, right? Right. And then he got promoted to lieutenant. And then, Correct. And then was there two sergeants at that time or just you? Yeah, there was two sergeants. So now there was in a six-person I think we're at six at that point, six or seven. In a six or seven person department, we had a chief, a lieutenant, and two sergeants and two patrolmen. Yeah, sounds like that sounds like what I'm dealing with at Sterling. <laughs> it's like you got too many chiefs, not enough Indians kind of feeling. But in a small department, that's um, it had to do with getting additional pay. That's the only avenue because I was topped out as a patrolman. On the pay range, and the only way, the only remedy to that was to promote me. Uh, okay. Um. So uh, another story that I think would be good to tell because it it formulated, and you don't have to use names in this story. Um. And then again, I can always edit it out if you want. But one of the things that was formative for me of listening to you guys tell all the stories is there was a time that you were arresting an individual, and he was in handcuffs, and he decided to spit in another officer's face. So you want to you want to kind of tell that story? Yeah. So where Casey's is at in Lyons now was a vacant lot, and we were arresting this guy, and we were had him in handcuffs. We were putting him in the uh, patrol car, and I hear the other officer say, "I'm going to break your jaw." <laughs> and I I didn't know what had happened at that point, but I knew it wasn't good, and I'm thinking in handcuffs if he hits him. This is not going to be good for an outcome. So I made a conscious decision to stand up and take a punch. And you literally stepped between that officer and that. And he told me later, the officer told me later, he said, you saved me from hitting him. And you saved my career. And I, and I, and he, then is when he told me that he spit in my face. Oh, okay. See that, that's one of those formative things. And there's another formative thing that I want to tell as well. Um, that helped guide me in my law enforcement career and in life in general of, you know, standing up for the right thing. You know, I mean, let's face it. Did that guy probably deserve to get punched in the jaw? I mean, from a person to person perspective. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Play stupid you've games, ever been, win stupid prizes. If you've ever been spit in the face, which I've had that happen to me as well. And it's not pleasant. Um, and so that helped guide me cause I, I've had those instances too, where I saw a situation going south in a hurry to where like it was the very next words were going to be a fist fight and it wasn't going to be good for the officer to where I stepped in and s- saved that thing too. So, you know, there, there have definitely been lessons learned. Another one was another thing that you kind of took on that was a passion of yours was dare. Why did, why did you get into dare? 
Well, I started teaching the, as, at the chief's request. I started teaching a class called personal safety awareness. And I don't know if you remember that or oh, not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was when and I was in grade first school. First grade and fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I really, really kind of took to teaching at that point. And even in high school, I thought about being a teacher, but then I got the law enforcement bug. So plenty of opportunities to teach in law enforcement. That's I, for sure. Uh, well, I didn't think about that, honestly, but I, I thought that, that the teaching was, I enjoyed that a lot. I enjoyed interacting with the young folks. And so they gave me an opportunity to take deer training. And I will tell you that deer officer training is in the top two of the hardest trainings I've ever been to, but the most rewarding training. So why, why was it so hard? Because you were working on presentations and learning the craft of being an instructor to young individuals far beyond the eight to five class. You would work in the evenings and build your lesson plans. And, you know, they, they set, they mentored you well and set a standard and you wanted to, to uh, be capable of that standard. And so you worked hard to do it. Um, also they had, uh, what, what was the lion's name? The dare lion, the stuffed animal, Darren, Darren. And didn't you, there wasn't there a little competition to try to steal Darren from other groups or something while you were there? Always. And it's a, it's an exercise in caring for people. They would, um, do, let's just say game show type trivia questions in the morning. And then you would win Darren, a squad or a group would win Darren, and then you would have to take Darren wherever you went, like if they were a child. And if you went to go eat out, then you got a high chair for Darren, and you put Darren in a high chair. I mean, (laughs) the whole idea was you're caring for a child. And then you got to decorate it with whatever you wanted to to, to, for your team's spirit. So we were all color-coded teams, so you would put something. My team was a green team, so we'd put something green on them. And so that's that's the process of learning to care for individuals. Um, so when you were was I was I the first dare class you taught? You were the very first dare class I taught. Okay, and that was in fifth grade in Mrs. Lang's class. Uh, God rest her soul. She was an awesome teacher for me. Nineteen ninety six, and um, that was the year I was born. And <laughs> and uh, thanks, Nate. <laughs> Uh, the guy's silent until this point. He decides he wants to talk. <laughs> Thanks for adding substance to the conversation, Nate. I've been working for almost 15 years by then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I remember, um, I remember, and I've told you this story many times, I know. I remember in, you, you were showing the difference between kind of like the difference between a rude cop and a nice cop. And I remember during that time that, what are you doing over there breaking? You might want to do, mute my mind say, for do you a need do you need a moment? Do you need a moment there? Um, and I remember you were t- telling you would you had these big thick square sunglasses that wrapped around the side that you always wore skiing. I remember they were purple, purple frame, yeah, mirrored, and everything like that. And you 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 sat a student in a chair and you acted like you were doing a traffic stop with them, and you had the sunglasses on during one of the traffic stops and you were rough and you were gruff and it was like, give me your license. And then like you'd leave. And then the next one you took them off, which, which was odd to me. Cause I never saw that side of you that I remembered. I mean, when I was in trouble, of course, but just as a, just as a general rule, I never, I never saw that from you. Um, and then 
the next traffic stop you did, quote unquote, on the student, you would take the sunglasses off and you changed your whole demeanor. And so another formative thing that sticks in my mind to this day, um, whenever I do traffic stops, I do not wear my sunglasses, period, ever. They come off, they go on the dash, and I do the traffic stop. And I remembered the difference in you and that being so odd and like I was like, whoa. And so even to this day, I see I see law enforcement officers that they come up on, I mean, in our own county, that they come up on to a traffic stop. And that person is immediately turned off by that law enforcement officer and just how they say what they're saying is not illegal or immoral or anything like that, but just how it rolls off the tongue. It just pushes people's buttons the wrong way. And I could do the same traffic stop for the same offense and give them a ticket and they'll thank me. So that was, that was also a very formative thing, um, in the sense of, of learning and then applying that to my, my law enforcement later on in life. Um, and then, of course, I got to mention I've got to mention this too because it's it's a cool and fun story, um, and you'll laugh when you hear it. Is like you know, so wh- I don't remember why you did this, but you you got a Blackhawk to come into the school. What what was that? Was that that was for Dare so, for something? But the Air National Guard had a program for drug abuse um, reduction, and they would they would use them to fly into schools and pass out anti drug. Um, information and be part of the war against drugs, as they would call it in that time period. And all I had to do was request it, and I requested it. And sure enough, they agreed to fly into the schoolyard of Central School and do their program and fly out, which means I got to ride on the helicopter. And so, uh, you know, aviation has always been a part of our family in one way or the other. And I'd been on many an aircraft, and so I go to load up in the aircraft with my dad in the Blackhawk, and he's like, "Not today." And I'm like, "What the hell do you mean, not today?" I'm like, "And that at that time, the the Blackhawk was brand new. I mean, it was the the creme de la creme, the newest. It was like, I think it was to replace the Huey, wasn't it? Like yes. that was what replaced the Huey. Yes. And and I'm like, "What the hell do you mean? I'm not getting on this aircraft and flying away here with you." And I'm still salty to this day that I haven't gotten to fly on a Blackhawk. <laughs> so you, you might not know we're even. Why is that? Because the same units would also fly law enforcement around and look for marijuana fields. No, oh, to eradicate. U, yeah, for eradication purposes, and. The day that I was supposed to fly with them to do that, you were sick. So you stayed <laughs> home from school. So guess who didn't get to fly on the UE? Uh, okay. Okay. I remember that. I, I mean, I remember. I did not know that. But I, I do remember one time getting sick in your patrol car and puking all over the door and you having to clean it all up. I remember that. Don't remember that. Um, I was in grade school. So it would have been it would have been prior to the Black Hawk incident. You weren't the only one that puked in my patrol car. Uh, <laughs> I've had that happen too as well. Oh, but we've got this little powder stuff that you like. You put it on there and it soaks all of it up, and then you you use a broom and sweep it up. It's kind of nice. Uh, all right, let's see what the next thing is here. Next thing on your your agenda. Does it mask the smell too? Yeah. It. It's kind of like adding. It's kind of like adding air freshener to a fart. I mean, Ugh. it's a it's a poopery smell, I guess. Um. Okay. So so then so then while you're were were you in college for friends while you were at Lions PD? 
Yes. Okay. Um, How did that work out? Like when you were getting your bachelor degree? Actually, the county attorney left, and there was a new county attorney. I went to the voter caucus or whatever you call the the appointment process, and I watched some of those attorneys and went, well, if they can do it, I can do it. I was motivated by that. And You mean get a degree? Get a degree. Okay. And I thought, it's time for me to go back to school. So I started slow. I went to, I took two classes at Barton County through the night courses there at Lyons High School. Two, three, two or three. And then I went full bore into going to uh, friends one night a week. That was problematic with shift work at my, at the time I was doing that. So I made an agreement with the boss. I could work any shift except 3 to 11. So my class was on Monday nights, and some of our days off were Sunday, Monday. So we agreed that any time I was working 3 to 11s for the next 18 months, he'd give me Sunday, Mondays off. I could still work nights. I could still work days. And that's how I went back to school. went to school one night a week for 18 months. And there, was, you- there was no online school back then either, so it was... That. No, um, this and this was a degree completion, and that was the new thing. And and uh, you went one night a week and went with the same cohort and went. You did. I love it, and that's how I did my masters as well. Is you do one class at a time, so I don't have homework from five or six different classes. I have homework from one. Yep, and I liked it a lot. That makes a big difference. I feel like, and it was very work friendly. So they they knew this was adult learning, so you could. If you were working and you had to get supper and eat supper while you were in class, they were totally cool with that. Yeah, I did something similar. We didn't have a cohort though, but we still, I only still did like the one, the one class for like three or four hours on like a Monday night. And they were, they were really cool about it too, really understanding, um, almost too understanding because there were, there were some people and, and keeping in mind the times are different, but there were some people in my class, classes that were younger. Um, you know, they were in their early twenties, um, mid, mid twenties because they were there on the, on GI bill stuff. They were in the military and they lived at home and they had no children or anything like that. And they, they magically couldn't get their homework done, which at that time I had three jobs working for MTC, uh, doing the route for you at night and being a cop and raising three children. And I managed to get my, my homework done. So, but they were a little too understanding sometimes. I'm like, seriously? Um, but yeah, they were really cool too. Like I would always go to Cinnamon's Deli and show up every time with, uh, with Cinnamon's Deli and eat my food there and get through the class was kind of cool. Um, so you get your degree in computer information systems, which serve to teach you that you don't want to work on computers. You said, correct. Um, what made you choose that? I mean, what was the, was the drive to that? I just loved working with computers. And well, and let's face it, computers weren't going to be disappearing anytime soon in the in the no, scheme of the world. We're, we're, so, for historical purposes, your audience that would have been in the Windows ninety eight era. I was in that era. Yeah. So the when that stuff really booming, taken off, booming. Um. So then, what made what made you make the decision that? Because let's face it, when you get into this job and you're in it as long as you are, it's it's not a you're not in it for the money, obviously. You know, it's it's a calling. It's in your blood. It's in your DNA. What made you make the decision that with as much as you like the patrol and all that kind of stuff that you wanted to leave the street and leave, quote unquote, leave law enforcement, which you didn't really do, but and, and make that transition to the academy looking, and teach? I 
think looking back, I would tell you that I was probably saying that I needed to be away from the child abuse cases. I'd done them for 12 years and I needed a break, but there was no break in sight. So I was looking for a way to change. And I figured out of my class, my cohort in college, I'd be the last one to change jobs. And I ended up being the first one to change jobs. <laughs> um, I graduated in May and I took the position at the academy a month later. Month you went, did you go through the whole hiring process in that time, or did yep. you start it before you? Uh, I was going through it first part of May and through June and took the job and actually started mid-July. Um, I remember that transition like quite vividly because it was like you were – I couldn't I couldn't open a can of Poppin' Lions without anybody knowing about it, um, which, which continued after you were out of law enforcement several times. Um, I remember one time I was doing a street race. And I just, I had my car, you weren't working at the, or you were working at the academy, you were not on the PD, you weren't even part-time for them, nothing. And we would always meet back up at the old car wash across some subway in Lyons. And my, my phone rings, my, my old Motorola phone that had the QWERTY keyboard that you had to type, type C, or uh, two, three times to get the letter C, you know. Mm-hmm. And my dad goes, did you win? And I said, uh, oh. yeah. And he goes, knock that shit off. Click. That was all I got. I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then another time I was, when I was working for Pratt County Sheriff's Office, I got a ticket, my first ticket ever out on 61 between Pratt and Hutch. I was coming here to do a concealed carry class. As soon as the trooper clears, my phone rings. My dad goes, so did you get a ticket? I'm like, what the, what the how, how do you know these things? <laughs> What, like I'm, I'm literally 40 miles from you right now. And at that time, there was no radio interoperability. Like right now, I can listen to KHP. And I could even talk to them too, but I could, I scan them in our area for our trooper. There, that didn't exist when that happened. Mm-hmm. And he just happened to be sitting at Wendy's with the, the trooper and the trooper heard my name come across the radio. And that's how he knew that I'd gotten a ticket, but I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. So that transition, that transition from, you being a law enforcement officer to the academy was interesting because it was it was like not anything that I'd ever had before. I was used to you working shift work. Now you were doing the kind of eight to five Monday through Friday, and that was odd as well. And you you even struggled with that for a long time, and sometimes yeah. still do. Um, I'm pretty used to it now. Uh, well, you still have times you tell me that you struggle sleeping at night. Yeah, but most of the time I can sleep. <laughs> I still like once I retire. I probably will transition back to night shifter. <laughs> how did how did it uh how long did it take you to adjust your circadian rhythm from shift work to probably a year. Really? That's crazy. I would sleep during lunch hours. I would sleep if I had a hour break in class just to just to survive. So what did you start teaching at the academy? What were your first kind of some of your first assignments? Um can I go back to the academy for just a minute for yeah. the application process? Hey, we're, we're here for, for you. You're in charge. I, uh, I actually applied hoping to get hired in the next two to three years. I wasn't ready to leave. I wanted 20 years in. And uh, lo and behold, they offered me a job. So then I had to make a decision. <laughs> and I wasn't sure I was ready to leave the street either, but looking back is the best thing I ever did. I loved it. Was uh, 20 years like a 
retirement something or another? Is that just a, no, number, um, just a mark? You Nick, Nick can share his retirement strategies with you. You don't get 20 years in law enforcement because we're not, I wasn't KPNF. He's not KPNF. Then you could, I think. It's, did, 20, it's 20 and 50, I think. Did, did Leosa exist then? Is what? Did Leosa exist then? I don't know what you're talking about. The Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act where you could carry, concealed carry as a law enforcement oh, officer no. nationwide no, no, and all that, that stuff that, when that you quit. That didn't happen until about four years after I went to the academy. So that would be a 20-year mark on Leosa would be a good thing. because So Leosa is that Law Enforcement Officer Safety Act. So, for instance, that's what covers me to be able to carry a gun anywhere in the nation mm-hmm. that I want, regardless of what the gun laws are. Some caveats there. Leosa doesn't cover magazine limits. So when I travel to California... Even as a law enforcement officer, I have to carry lower capacity magazines because Leosa does not cover high capacity magazines. But anyway, um, after 20 years, you can quote unquote retire out of the job and you can carry anywhere nationwide again okay. and not, not be a I credentialed. They, I think they moved that to 10 now. So, oh, okay. Um, so at that time it was, or when it first started, that was 20. So 10, that, that 10 in been. good standing, leaving in good standing. Yeah. Um, so what what were some of the things you first started in at the academy when you first started? So I first started teaching juvenile code, emergency vehicle operations. I didn't teach firearms for the first year I was there because they couldn't get me in a firearm instructor school. They had them; they were full. Um, I taught collision investigation. Those are the those are I think were my classes that I taught when I first went. I remember watching some of the videos from when you went to Artesia, New Mexico, which is where you went to get your certification, right? Three weeks into the job, they sent me to Artesia, New Mexico to be a driving instructor. And I really thought if I fail this, I'm going to be fired three weeks into the job. That's <laughs> <laughs> some pressure. And, uh, that is not the case, but I didn't know that at the time. I still, I still can't even believe that, like at the academy, that, you know, you do that, what week of EVOC? Is it a week? Um, yes, two days. Uh, of classroom and three days of driving at this point. I mean, I, I can't, I, I could not believe that they paid me to literally go out and basically tear up cars. I mean, that's essentially what it is. I mean, there's, of course, there's much more to it. Tear up cars. It, it is wearing, okay. Lots if, of wear and tear. That's what I'm talking not, about. We're not tearing cars up. Right. That's what I, well, okay. That's what I meant. Like, cause I'm, I'm like, if you asked Rick Tomer to take his precious cars out to the Evoc course, what hey, do you think he's going to say? He'd, he'd say, you're not tearing my car Exactly. Up. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, that was amazing. So what was it like doing that for three weeks? Cause I'm sure that you got the whole plethora of things that you, even you guys don't probably teach. I loved it. I, that's the one piece of teaching I miss is driving instruction. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I, I to see the light bulb come on. The, the only time that I have been terrified in a car is driving at high speed with him, but he, he managed it. We didn't die. And I learned, I learned a lot of things as a result of you in your driving school. Cause you, you, you tested a lot of teaching techniques and learning on me. Um, like when I would drive, he would literally pull the, pull the wheel and pull me off the side of the road and be like, all right, now get back on there. Nice and easy. You know, Hey, it sounds worse than it is. Just take your time. Get back on. Don't overcorrect. You know, driving with your headlights on off road recovery. Um, uh, and then also I remember one time we were in front of where Casey's is now. He just reached over and turned the key off. All right, get to the side of the road. You have no power. And of course, power steering's gone. Um, or, uh, I remember one night was very fun. Um, statute limitations that out on this were good. Um, <laughs> 
it's a traffic offense. Um, he was teaching me how, like, if the car would start skidding, like how to recover from a skid. And so that was your, your pink Toyota Tacoma at the time. And it was very, very light in the rear end. So one day it was very icy out and he let me just literally drive around lines. And it was like, again, I was out with you at way late hours. I was always a, a night owl. So we were out late and no cars out, no traffic, nothing. The town shut down and he would, we'd go around the corner and he'd say goose it. And then it would start sliding. And then I had to recover from the slide. And man, we did that forever. And man, that was so much fun. And then you'd put four wheel drive in and say, see how it pulls versus sliding. And I can't tell you how many times those lessons have saved me as a driver on the road. Like not even just as a cop, but yeah, just as a driver or, or reacting to uh, stimuli of having to get out of an accident or avoid an accident uh, saved me many, many, many times. Um, but, I, but like father, like son, again, you know, we, we both have had our fair share of damaging patrol vehicles. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely inherited that in my DNA, <laughs> <laughs> but we did find out I no longer have the record. Angie, oh, yeah. Angie has the record. Does she? If she has the record. So it's not, it's not, uh, and, and Ehrlich is quickly catching up on that. So I'm, I'm good to go or I don't, I no longer carry the torch. Hold on a second. <laughs> knock on wood on that one. Um, so I guess like what, what was your, what was your favorite thing to do at the academy like if you had to pick like what you just enjoyed the most where time just flew by like what was... teaching driving um so like when you were when as far as like you were driving or you were sitting in the pastor seat teaching someone how to drive or standing outside and and demonstrating it and then having them do it remember how we used to replicate those exercises and then let you guys practice them yeah and you know talk to you about errors and let actually i i'm a kind of teacher that likes to let you make the air and then say, now, why that happened and how we're going to fix it. Yeah. And if you're going to make errors, the time to make errors is in training. 100%. Um, That's so, the way I learned, too, from my mess-ups. Oh, yeah. You learn significantly more from your, I don't even want to say failures, from your learning opportunities than you do from your successes. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you, you, how long did you work before you started the promotion process, the first promotion process? At the academy? Yeah. I was an instructor for 13 years. And I remember that was one thing that you were kind of hesitant when you were promoting because you knew that you were going to be pulled out of the classroom pretty much and you weren't going to be teaching as much, if at all, anymore. So what made you make that decision that you wanted to to make that next step? Well, my degree, my master's degree was in management. So I didn't really want to manage people until I went to school and I got the bug. And I really enjoyed the idea of management, and I do to this day. So I thought, well, it's time to, to, there's an opening and there's a time to give it a try. So I went in and for that, that management, that was a basic training administrator, which is basically an assistant principal. So I taught about half the time and administrated about half the time. Oh, okay. I thought you were, weren't teaching then. Nope. From 2013 to 2018. I still taught about half time. So that you would have been under Dave Worry at the time, right? Correct. Um, and you took Jack Leon's spot. Correct. Okay. And um, and so then, so then Dave retired, and then is that when you moved? When you applied for his position? No, um, they moved Ron Gould over to Dave's position in a lateral move. So it was a year after that that when the director 
Pavey retired. That oh, those that's right. Started to open up. That's right. That's right. Because then Darren moved to director and all that kind of stuff. And so, and then you sit now at associate director. Correct. Which is basically what third, third in line of yes. in, in command there. So, so you basically have literally moved from part time reserve guy, literally all the way through the ranks now to associate director, to where you're essentially kind of for. I mean, you, you are facilitating the steering of the ship when it comes to what law enforcement in Kansas is. For basic training, yes. For basic training. Um, so when I went through the academy, my academy experience was a lot of law enforcement officers, they want to talk negatively of it. I think it's almost like a badge of honor to where like that we're complaining. There's something that we can complain about this thing that we've been through together. But I, I, and I don't say this just because you sit here and, and I have something to gain by it. But my academy experience, I learned a significant amount that I didn't know. And I was on the street for several years prior to being there as well because of the time that I spent as a reserve in Pratt. And, you know, Vernon had standards too. You know, he would, he tested us. We had like academy like tests. Um, they weren't the same questions or anything. Like he'd had the answers, but we had academy like tests that we had to take before we could get out. But it was, it was an interesting experience. Because it was literally the first six weeks from what I remember was basically death by PowerPoint. I mean, it was just, you sat in a classroom and slide by slide by slide. We went through these things. Um, mainly constitutional law was the huge part of that. And then you got some other smaller things, like I think like radio operations, you know, small classes like that. But then eventually you moved out into kind of more hands-on-y practical you know, then EVOC and the defense tactics. And then eventually, you know, and you had a test every week, every Monday, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, oh, speaking of that. Uh, so when I took my first test, uh, you want to tell what that was like being from the instructor side of things? Well, you never know how you're going to do. And I've seen my share of student failures and I've seen my share of student successes. So I was probably just as apprehensive as you. <laughs> In your first test, and I saw your score, and there was a lot of relief. And from that point on, I didn't worry about your test the rest of the time at the academy. Uh, so, were you a full time instructor then, or were yes. you? The, okay, yeah, he and wasn't. I, he hadn't was, promoted yet. I was able to, uh, you know, we there's a conflict of interest with him being my son, but the the goal or the expectation was that I could teach him. I couldn't test him. Okay. So anything that had to require a testing or performance or written tests, uh, somebody else had to do. So I yeah. didn't get to test him, which yeah, was I, fine with me. Yeah, I remember that essentially, you know, you you great, you very much distanced yourself from that kind of stuff. And one thing I've also respected a lot about you too is is like you you really respect the privacy of things because let's face it, law enforcement, especially in Kansas, is a small community. Things get around. And, you know, if I were to ever even mention anything, you know, you would always be like, nope, can't talk about that. Sorry, go away. You know, you, you always respected that. And that was another thing that I respect a lot, too, that I tried to to move on into my career as well. Um, but, uh, you know, so going back to the uh, basic training experience, like I still have my books behind my desk and I will open them up from time to time and reference them on things. I still that... have my books behind my desk. <laughs> <laughs> and and I will actually open them up and reference them on things. Like when I started doing my first dealing with confidential informants, not something I do a lot of because, you know, I have to be a tactician that knows a little bit about everything and confidential informants and dope buys and stuff were not my forte. So, of course, when I needed to know about it, Grab out my academy books, open to that, start reading. Oh, okay. I remember this now. 
So it, it taught me a significant amount that I didn't know. And the thing that I thought was cool was that, that focus on constitutional law. Because, I mean, we literally are that line. Like I was telling Nate one time in the podcast, literally no person, no thing when I'm on the side of the road is keeping me from jerking someone out of a car, putting them in handcuffs, putting them in my car, searching their car, completely and totally violating their lights, rights right there in that moment, right? Like nobody is forcibly keeping me from doing that. Now, I will be made to pay in a civil lawsuit and have to pay significant amounts of money. But that focus on constitutional law was so important to me as as law enforcement officer. And it's like such a focus there that like, here's how you do this and you do it right and you don't violate people's rights and you hold that line. I thought that was cool. And I would tell you, I learned the same thing in the academy when I went from my college time to what I learned at the academy was the constitutional law and interviewing and interrogation. Those are, those are, even though I say I learned them at the academy, I will tell you it probably took me two years of practitioner work mm-hmm. to really understand it. Yeah. And five years of practitioner work to understand interviewing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's one reason I think, uh, I'm so good at podcasting is just the fact that I do interview people for work all the time. And I just know how to keep the conversation flowing, get the answers I want, you know, things like that. So you're interrogating me, huh? Well, I mean, I, I haven't done the whole. Not clo- just you, everybody. The, all 80 people that have, we've talked to, <laughs> 40 or whatever. Uh, I, I have no problem asking uncomfortable questions. That's why I say, what's off the, what, what, what do you and don't you want to talk about? <laughs> um, so I guess the thing that's interesting now, and even to me is, how has the basic training experience at the academy changed from, so you, you went through it eight weeks. And then I went through, and it's 14 weeks, so there was a change there. Do you know when that change happened from 8 to 14? Yeah, when I first started the academy, it was a nine-week, 10-week format in nine weeks, which means we did a week of it in night classes. So it was nine weeks, and in 2002, we changed to 14 weeks. Okay. So how does the 14-week experience from when I went through, which I was at the, the 212th class, what are you at now? We started 315 Christmas. I'm getting old. last Monday. I'm getting so old. Remember, though, we do 16 classes a year now, so they they go much more rapid. Okay. Um. So, so how does that? How does it change? How did you change it? Like, what's different? The, the academy is significantly so, different. So when you went, you're right. The first six weeks were pretty much lecture and PowerPoint, and there were 60 or 64, 68, somewhere in that range in your class. That's why we had to do a lot of lecture. And then we broke you into groups and did what we called triple teaches. So we might teach driving, firearms, and SFST, standardized field sobriety testing. Or PTDT, physical thing, or, yeah. physical training and defensive tactics. And we would do that for three weeks with all three groups until we were done. And then we'd do another triple teach until we were done. And that's how we got, and they were groups of 20. And that's how we got that practical stuff done. Now we have classes of 24 which means we have to start one every three weeks. And so it's a much smaller class. You you probably remember people in your class that were hiding. Um, if they just kept their mouth shut and didn't talk, then they didn't have to answer any questions. And that can lead to problems down the road in the, on when you hit the street because now you can't communicate well. So now they have to communicate. We do a participant-based learning process where there's a whole lot less lecture. You can't get away from lecture 100%. Uh, I've seen that tried, and they 
they fail, and then they tell you, well, you didn't tell me how to do it. So there has to be that balance, and we have that balance now where they're given some background, and then they're asked to problem solve. So we do a lot of critical thinking in the process now. The students, each one of the students have a laptop, and we deliver all the notebooks that you were talking about. It's all delivered electronically now, so they won't get notebooks. Well, that's good, because I they remember you got Keep it on a flash drive, or they have to put it on a uh, cloud storage. I remember going into the room that you guys had that was devoted to handouts. I mean, it was a huge room with just thousands and thousands of pages of paper and Lots stuff that you trees. had printed out. The uh, the photocopiers ran about eight hours a day every day trying yeah. to make enough handouts. Yeah. So you've so eliminated we, that expense yeah, now, too. We don't have any photocopies to speak of. I mean, of course, there's the office stuff, but... Nothing for student material. The other thing that we've done is we've developed class mentors. So the mentors um, take care of the day-to-day needs and the small disciplinary issues and help them figure out how to be a better person. We also um, do performance testing, which there was – some performance testing when you went through, but if you didn't pass, there really was not that much consequence where now there is a consequence. You cannot be certified if you don't pass the performance testing. So now there's a weekly quiz for 10 of the 14 weeks. And then every three weeks, there's a benchmark written test and a benchmark performance test where they have to show us that you can regurgitate certain information and that you can also like perform. Yeah. Say perform it. Yeah. It's a competency based learning style. Not only do you know how to do it, you have to show us you can do it. And we've had some failures that, uh, they get one chance at the end to take a retake, just like a typical state board for an EMT or a state nurse or a law degree. So we give them another retake opportunity and if they don't make it, they don't get certified. And so uh, is, is KLATC accredited in some way? We are working on that currently. Um, CALEA, and I can't tell you what it stands for right off the top of my head. You can pull it up there if you want to. But uh, Is we're that working, like a federal certification then? Uh, or yeah. Is it, yeah. And we're working on that certification. We have our first uh, mock assessment in about a month and a half. So do you do a lot of research like into other states and what they're doing and communicate with these other training centers um mostly it's developing policies and procedures to make sure we're following some kind of best practice Mm -hmm. but we do as we were redoing the curriculum so in 2018 when darren beck took over director there was a push to do a new curriculum complete new curriculum which we have done that and that's when we went out to these other states and Mm -hmm. we traveled to other states and visited with them and Made sure that we're doing best practices. So it means the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement. Or the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement. Yeah, is what yeah so we're means. working on the CLIA process as we speak. And, and I think one thing that uh, everybody hears CLIA and hates it and all this other kind of stuff, and they think that CLIA is like this these set of handcuffs that ties you into doing things, but it's not that way, right? What it, you, you were saying that basically CLIA says, you know, you have to have a policy on, say, use of force. But, you know, you kind of ride it well, your way. 
There's CALEA accreditation for law enforcement agencies and CALEA accreditation for training academies. Two different oh, animals. Okay. okay. So we don't have to have a policy on use of force, but we have to have policies about how we train. So how we manage students who fail, how we manage um, But it doesn't tell you really the how. It doesn't tell you how you have to do it. It says you have to show a process. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not nearly as handcuffing or constraining as some people make it out to be. Well, the hand, the part that's tedious, and it truly is tedious, is then you have to prove that you're doing it that way. And proofs come in the form of pictures, documents. Um, some, some metric. Some testimony, some metric in collecting those proofs and matching them to the CALEA standard is pretty tedious. So what what does a CALEA accreditation gain a training academy? Um, the fact that we're following a standard and that we aren't just doing things willy-nilly. So does it does it basically protect, oh, I shouldn't say protect you, but does it give you an extra layer if someone were to say sue you and say you weren't training adequately or something like that? Or? I don't really think it. You know, it might help that to some standard, but it also, when you're looking for funding opportunities, it Mm. gives you the uh, ability to say that we're in line with best practices. I got you. Um, And so speaking, speaking of, uh, well, actually, let's just keep, let's just keep going on that. So, um, so you have the benchmark things and I will, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll sing some praises here. I recently reached out to you because I'm looking at doing some force on force stuff. And so I went and watched the force on force because obviously I've been through it. I've been through the Academy's version. I've been through yours when you were training us at Sterling PD. And so I was like, okay, I know things have changed since the last time I've done this. I should be going and talking to the subject matter ex- experts that have been to these classes recently and then see how y'all are doing it because you have changed your curriculum up completely. And the one thing that I thought was the most amazing and was awesome at what you're doing is when I, when I sat and we watched, or I watched without, I'm not going to give any tactics here or anything, but I watched low light vehicle stops. And we saw the first student come in and they were kind of, I, I shouldn't say they, they were, they weren't necessarily confused, but you could tell they were task saturated. You know, when they first, for, they first came in, they, they were kind of struggling a little bit to, to get the little nuancey things. Their use of force was on point. Their verbiage was on point. But like the speed with which they were moving, how they were communicating, you know, those things, they hadn't been inoculated to that stress yet. Putting it all together. And yeah. And so, and, but by the time I, I was only there for a four hour stretch. I think I started at like eight that morning and I left about 1130 because I had to go to get ready to go to work. Watching those students from the first scenario to the last scenario was like they'd been in school all day long. Like they'd been doing this for their whole life. Watching your instructors slow them down, calm them down. Cause like the first scenario, they just let them kind of run it, you know, and make the mistake or, or like, you know, talking on the radio real fast and trying to, trying to shoot and talk at the same time, whatever, you know, whatever it was they were doing. And then the, the instructor pulled them back and goes, Hey, hang on just a minute. Slow down. Okay. Is he still, is that person still a threat? Well, no. Okay. What's the status of your gun? Oh, okay. Maybe I should do a reload. Okay. Now, are you hurt? Oh yeah, that's right. I need to check myself. Now, what should we do? Oh, let's talk to dispatch. Now, now they've slowed themselves down. They're working the process and now they're getting onto the radio and talking to dispatch more calm, cool, and collected. They're still a little amped up, but they aren't screaming. They aren't freaking out. 
And watching that progression from the first scenario to when they were done, I was like, holy cow, I'm training this way. Like watching those students go from newbies to practitioners by the very end of those scenarios, I was like, I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. I was like, this is the way to do it. This is the way I'm going to do it. And ironically or anecdotally, that's how the feedback we're getting from the agencies in the field training piece. Well, they're and, saying they're far and away ahead of where they were in the old curriculum. Well, and you gave those students, when they were done with the scenario, they sat on the sidelines and watched someone else run it. And so they not only got their own mistakes and experiences, they got to see someone else do it. And see a rep and a rep and a rep and a rep and a rep. rep. Yeah. But then, but then when the next scenario ran around, they changed the order up. Right. So it wasn't like if you were the first guy, you always got to watch six other people. They changed the order up so that, you know, you weren't always the first guy or the last guy. They do those kind of exercises for two days straight and they do that throughout. So everybody gets a chance to go first. Which, if you think about it, I mean, when I ran through, I got to do one, two, three. I think three, three force on four scenarios that I can remember. Uh, four, four force on four scenarios that I can remember. Now they're getting what, 20, 30? Right. By the time they're watching it. Right. That's pretty significant. And you're getting those more reps, but they're not firing more rounds. So you're also and saving money too, if you want to look also, at it from that. They're also simpler scenarios instead of complex, complex that, that they, they're not at the level to put that stuff together yet. Well, that and you leave them a chance to argue things. When you start making scenarios complex, well, this, what if that, but I saw this and I saw that, whereas these small micro fights, I know you don't like calling them micro fights anymore. I don't even know what they're called now. But these little micro fights, there's less for them to argue. Like there's the, here's what we want the outcome to be. Here's what we want them to learn. And that's exactly what we do. We don't give them a chance to argue or, you know, feel like they were slighted in some way. Argue is not the word. It's the the outcome is predictable, and we want that predictable outcome to occur and lessons predictable lessons learned. Um. So not only did you change the class size, you and and the fact that they have um uh, like laptops and the, the the way they have mentors and the way that they're graded and stuff. But you also significantly changed the layouts of the classrooms. The classrooms used to very much be old school lecture hall with the projector up front. And now that's changed. How, yeah, we, how is that going? We remodeled them and put power in all the floors and put um, TV screens with uh, Wolf Vision technology, which allows for blackboards, computers, um, mirror casting, internet services, a whole host of stuff and, and sharing we call them pods between one, there's six pods in a room and we can share between those pods with each other or back up to the instructor's pod where we can let them work a process or work a problem and then share that to everybody else and, and mentor and lead and facilitate. You know, there may be more than one way to solve a problem and let's visit about that. So basically, um, just to kind of illustrate that picture on the TV screen at that specific pod on the wall a group can start working a problem and solving that with the technology. Right. And then when it's time to say, hey, what did you do? Now you bring that up on everybody's TV screen. You can bring right. up that pod on everybody's right. TV screen. 
or at least to the instructor spot where everybody can see it. Yeah, and then and then, and then vice versa. You just go around the room and you can do that. And and additionally, it brings the Kansas communities to the classroom because I can pull up a house on Google Maps, or I can pull up a bar, or I can pull up a bank, and you can talk or school, and you can talk about the tactics that you might need to uh, okay. yeah. to uh, mitigate some of those threats that might occur. So. You can bring the classroom from the communities of Kansas right into our classroom. So, um, do you use like if you got a student that's say from Hutch, would you use like a building in Hutch, and then he's like the they get expert? To, they get to choose. Do they? Okay. Between the group, they choose a building. We may tell them pull up a school, so they'll talk amongst themselves which school they might pull up. And there might be four different schools they could pull up in that group, but they choose which one they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, how did, how did, um, Corona affect you guys? Because not only were you going, you were going through the new curriculum and stuff at that point. So it added an extra wrench in the plan. Like how did that affect you guys? So I say in, in the vein of my work at the KLETC, Corona was a blessing because we needed to stop the machine long enough to rewrite lessons. And we were able to do that when our instructors were not working through Corona because we shut down classes for two and a half months because everybody didn't know how it was going to turn out. I don't think we would shut down again given similar circumstances. Um, it gave our ch- instructors time to even work from home and work through Zoom and build the new lessons and the new curriculum. It was very helpful. Now, the downside to that is that put us down about 70 students to catch up, and we had to find a way to catch up those 70 students for two and a half months because law enforcement doesn't didn't quit during Corona. Still needed the same people. Yeah, and and I mean there there are certain things that are there. I mean I'm assuming there are certain things you still cannot miss. Period. Like can you you can't miss evoc, you can't miss use of force, like those kind of things. Can't miss firearms. Can't miss driving, and you. Uh, have to successfully take a test for use of force. Um, are you still doing just the, the that that offshoot small test for use of force? No, our benchmark tests all have use of force built into them. Oh, okay. Um, so if force we, on force stuff. So so you so you're now an associate director, which has then opened up some some other avenues for you, and you've kind of achieved a, a dream that you've had for a long time of getting your pilot's license. What's that been like? That was a journey. <laughs> Best most most of the that. things that you've accomplished lately have not exactly been easy. So uh, my father is, if you remember, was a mechanic and a pilot, and I've always had that dream. And as a young cop with children, child, you don't have the money for that. And I was able to find some money to do that, and I completed that dream. It's an 18-month journey. And now you get to just go out and fly for fun, which you did today. How was it today? I did. It was a little bumpy the first 500 feet off the ground, and then it smoothed out at about 2,000 feet off the ground. Where'd you go? Went uh, north out of Hutch to Little River over a farm. I had my first non-pilot passenger and went over their house and then went over the north part of the county and then back to the airport in Lyons, north part of Rice County. 
back to the airport in Lyons and landed and then took back off and went back to Hutch about an hour and 20 minutes of flight time. Who'd you fly with today? Dina Smith. Oh, Sam's wife. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, <clears throat> did, uh, what did, have you, have you taken Sam up or are you going to? Sam refuses to go. <laughs> Why is that? He's been in a small airplane for some fishing stuff in Canada and did not enjoy it. Oh, well, fair. Uh, is there anything that guy hasn't experienced? I mean, goodness gracious. So are you going to get your instructor license for piloting um, too? Flying? No. Um, I probably would not be eligible for uh, a medical to the point that I could do that. Mm. Plus, that's a, probably another forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 worth of uh, flight time that I'm not willing to pay for. But now you can go get the $100 hamburger. I have gotten the $100 hamburger. What was that? I think they're probably back from Wichita. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I guess explain what the one hundred dollar hamburger is. Well, it's 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 more like a three hundred dollar hamburger these days. Well, yeah, um, because it's the amount of money you spend to rent and fly the aircraft, and the time it takes to get the license, and then the food cost itself. So you factor all that in, and it becomes a three hundred dollar yeah. hamburger. Because that's like one of the one of the things about like for instance Hutch has the the Hutch Airport with the airport steakhouse attached. You can literally land your aircraft, go inside, eat, get back in your aircraft, leave, and that's kind of like there are some destination type places like that that you can fly to and get the three hundred dollar hamburger, quote Correct. unquote. And that's that's where that, but that comes it's, from. It's been coined over the years as a hundred dollar hamburger. Yeah. Well, that was one thing I've told you many times that I've always thought would be cool, and I've told Nate as well because you know. Nate's uh, going to be rich soon, so I tell him when he gets his aircraft that you know we can we can fly to Dallas and get lunch and come back, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I thought that would always be cool, especially in Nate. That might be a more like a thousand dollar hamburger. <laughs> yeah, well, especially in Nate's case, with him being single and being in the <laughs> dating world, could you imagine being like, "Hey, you want to go to Denver for lunch?" Be like, "What?" <laughs> and then loading them up in an aircraft and taking them like that would be the ultimate date. Like, what girl could say they've been on a date like that? I date? feel like that would be intimidating to a girl. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so like, cool. This dude's got enough I, money to take me on an airplane for a date, like that, or you, you'd be in the doghouse as soon as you got out there and they said, "Well, we can't go back because the weather's too bad." <laughs> <laughs> what uh, do you mean I can't go back? We can't go back because the weather's bad. <laughs> yeah, quote unquote. So, um, do you just, uh, is there like an airplane here that you rent or yeah, I'm like a, a friends or um, club salt city aviation has a, a couple of club planes. Okay. And so they're a little cheaper than tra- typical trainers. You pay a monthly fee and then you pay a, a little lesser fee for hourly. So that's so, what you did to get your hours and stuff. I then. did all mine in Wichita. Okay. Um, I wanted to fly in that busy airspace and learn that. And so I wouldn't be scared of it. And then also wanted to fly an airplane that has the glass panels, mm-hmm. the, the G1000, because I, I'm a techie guy and I think that's cool. And I So instead of the easier. analog gauges, it's like a TV screen, basically. Yeah. I think it, I think it, it would, it, I thought in my mind it'd be easier to go from glass to analog. Um, you know, and not having that experience of going from analog to glass, I don't know whether it was or not, but I feel pretty comfortable. Going now, the airplane I fly is analog. It's steam or what they call steam gauges, and I'm getting along fine with them. What uh, what aircraft do they have there? It's a Grumman Tiger. 
Is that a mid wing, high wing? It's a low wing. Low wing. Kind of like a Piper. And it kind of equates to Cessna 182 for the same, same, same load capacity and speed. Um, so what are, what are some, I know you always end up having like destination things. Are you ever going to fly to go to a rifle match or a 22 match or anything um, like that? Or right now I have plans to fly t- for work to Kansas city in mid July. And then I have a rifle match scheduled to fly to in Amarillo, Texas in September. Which do they, are when you go to Kansas city or do they have like courtesy cars that you can use while you're there? And, um, yes. That you can use to get around or I can rent a car. Well, if work's doing it, might as well rent, you know, something nice. Uh, are you flying into KCI? Oh, no. No, no. Probably wouldn't be allowed in that airspace. I mean, it's not impossible, but um, there's several regional airports around the area. I'll be flying into Olathe. Oh, okay. Um, it's on, it's not, you don't even get into Class B airspace. It's right on the south ring of the airspace. I was going to say, flying into KCI would be an interesting experience if you ever, like, if you were doing that. I was going to I was gonna ask you what you thought of that. But, um, so I guess what, what are some, uh, what are some next steps for you? Like, what are the, what are your things? I mean, obviously you got the private pilot and like. Enjoy what, flying. I have no next steps. Uh, well, I mean, obviously retirement at some well, point. What are you going to do then? Hopefully I have a medical where I can still fly. <laughs> and then you're just going to give me bunches of your retirement money, right? Pay off my bills and all that kind of stuff. Maybe someday. It's supposed to work the <laughs> other way on that, I think. I'm supposed to give him, him my money? Yeah. Why? Huh? Because he took care of you for years. And I'm doing the same thing now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Um, well, I uh, uh, I think that was a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to do that. Was that as bad as you thought it was going to be? Oh, we didn't talk about the uh, rifle stuff. I want to tell one oh, story. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I that's cool. Talk. So you got to hear this one. Nick gets interested in... Long distance rifle and buys a rifle and says, you need to go. And I said, no, that's not my thing. I shoot pistols and well, it was, it was a competition and, shoot. That was and, the first part of that. So we had a long distance rifle at work and the ammo was I, free. <laughs> since I didn't have to pay for the ammo and I didn't have to pay for a gun. I said, okay, I'll learn by YouTube. So I YouTube the heck out of it. And he takes me up to this match in Lincoln, Kansas. I lay down on the rifle for my first shot. It's 300 yards. It's the farthest I've ever shot a rifle in my life. <laughs> and I have no expectation, expectation to hit it. And I dial the scope like the YouTube says. And I shoot. And the spotter looks at me and says, hit. And I looked at him literally and said, really? <laughs> and I have been hooked on long distance rifle ever since. That was from that moment on. Um, and I've moved in from the center fire world to the 22 world. Rimfire. Rimfire. And I absolutely love Rimfire. I've been in, I think, seven states competing. We go all over the place. And yeah, what kind of range do you shoot with uh, the Rimfire? Um, the, the farthest I've hit a Rimfire target is 440 yards. Um, I hit 400 <laughs> the other day. That's pretty impressive. It. And probably, a, they're decently big target with for Rimfire, uh, aren't rim, they? At 400? Um, that one was the one I hit. 400 two weeks ago was a uh, 16 inch target. Oh, okay. Well, that's actually pretty small considering. <laughs> I figured you were going to tell me 36 or something like that. It's nope. like a dinner plate. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's, that's another thing too. I remember when we would go to the Lincoln matches and we were shooting on the west side of the road where they, where the field was, uh, not the long distance side, but the, the west side. 
I remember that they had targets sat like towards towards the end of one of the first matches that we shot. And this was before this was before like Precision Rifle Series, before Kansas Precision Rifle Club, before Nash NRL. Uh, what's that's NRL National, National Rifle, Rifle League. League National Rifle League. Before that stuff ever took off, and it was just basically just a local match hosted by Steve Worth and his wife and their kids, and. I remember we were shooting these cardboard targets at 500, and it was cumbersome. You'd go down, you'd score, blah, 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 you'd come back. You know, the reset times were a lot. And, of course, we were all learning through that process. But I remember at a 500-yard target, like, my group was bigger than a basketball. It was huge just because I didn't know cheek weld. I didn't know any of that stuff. And now anymore, um, and I might be a little rusty now because it's been a minute, but 500, you know, shooting, shooting – a group at 500 and hitting it consistently is like, wouldn't be as big a deal, especially with the six creed. That would no, be no big deal. Your group would probably be somewhere around six or eight inches or less or less with the six creed with the six creed. I was, I was shooting pretty, pretty good, which grouping is stupid. I mean, if you're shooting to shoot a good group, you're not shooting to be practical. You're shooting to a level of proficiency, not to a level of real life is essentially what you're trying to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we even went, uh, one time when we were in Colorado at, uh, Estes Park when we were on vacation, we traveled and with you, you, Eli and I, we all traveled yep. to a 22 match and shot there. Those was, that people. Last, was that last summer? That had been two, uh, three summers ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Four. Cause there was a three year gap for the last reunion. Yeah. Those, those dudes were Nazis at that range. Whew. They ran. I, I did not enjoy myself that, as much uh, there. That range has grown, and there is probably 60 shooters in that group now. Really? It's very popular out there. Huh. Well, I mean, could you imagine all the opportunities to shoot at angles in, in mountainous areas in Colorado? I mean, that adds a whole nother yep. level when you have to add the cosine in, and yep. you're, you're shooting. You're always going to be shooting, you know, shorter, quote-unquote, if you're shooting upper, uphill or downhill, but... Factoring that in there is always an interest. Like in Kansas, you don't really shoot off the coastline much. And no. if you do, it's pretty negligible. <laughs> if you do, you're trying real hard. Um, but yeah, I remember when dad, dad first got his six, six Creed or yeah, six and a half Creed more his RPR, Remington precision rifle. And my 308, I always, I always compare my 308 to when I would compete with those guys, they're shooting 243s. At that time, when I first started, people are shooting 243s. They're shooting um, 260s. Uh, six and a half Creed was starting to come on scene. Um, there weren't really many Wildcat cartridges, but uh, shooting a 308 against those guys was like bringing a Pinto to a Formula One race. Like, I'm going to go around the track. I'm just not going to go around the track as fast as these guys. <laughs> like, the wind was pushing my bullet three times more than theirs. So I'm having to factor in three times more wind and all those things. And it just, and it was going, the bullets going subsonic around, well, transonic around 700 going subsonic, probably 720 to 750. And once it goes into that transonic flight, it's a crapshoot what the bullet does ballistically after that. And those guys were carrying supersonic to a thousand. You know, and, and so they, they were able to consistently hit significantly more than me. And I was always in the bottom third of shooters, always, mm-hmm. if not last, you know, last two, three places. And then dad, dad bought me a, uh, 
you bought, did you buy me the, just the barrel? Cause I already had the action, right? Actually, I won the barrel on a drawing. Okay. So dad gave me the certificate for a barrel and then I had it chambered in six creed, which was a significant wildcat cartridge at that time. But people weren't really, the reason that wildcat cartridges weren't a thing for a while was because the pressures and stuff and they're going so fast and they're so hot that they would wear out barrels very quickly. So the military would never pick those cartridges up because they would burn out barrels. And the military is shooting significant amounts of cartridges. Whereas the 308 Winchester, I mean, I probably had three to 5,000 rounds probably by the time we were done down was, that barrel. It was probably half used at that point. Yeah. Whereas, whereas those Wildcat cartridges, you might get a season of shooting out of them. Yeah, you might get a, yeah, a thousand, yeah, a thousand to 2,000 rounds total. And then you're changing the barrel. And so, uh, had it chambered in six creed. And then I even had them custom cut the rifling for the bullet that I was going to shoot. So mm-hmm. rather than being like a one in six, I think it's a one in six and a half or something like that. I forget the twist rate. And I went out to my very first match with that thing and placed ninth out of like 40 or 50 shooters. I mean, that's the difference Big that difference. The, the cartridge makes and the tech. Well, and there's some skill there too. I mean, there has to be some proficiency in operating and pulling the trigger, being the trigger monkey. But uh, it's so much fun to do those things. And when Dad got his six and a half creed, I was never able to hit the fourteen hundred yard target, and that was the furthest target that they had. And it was a man sized target, um, probably what twenty four inches across, twenty four to thirty six, something like that. Yeah, about twenty four by thirty six. And um, and I finally hit it, but it, but it took a it took a six and a half creed for me to get it done. I could never get it with a three hundred eight. I'd always hit around it. You know, Dad would be like, "Come up." you know, half a mil and left three quarters of a mil or, you know, two, two mils or 0.2 mils or whatever. And then it would hit way off the left side. Well, no, never mind. Come back right this much. And it was just always all over the place, always all over the place. So, um, that's why I was telling you, we still need to go out and play and shoot out at your, your farm or your grandpa's farm in that case. Cause that's all his farm ground. Right. Mm -hmm. But that would be so much fun. Like to, to do that. And I've even got some metal targets. We, well, he's got some metal targets that I can borrow that we can, we could use. We could build a nice pile of dirt out there. Yeah. <laughs> you got a skid steer. Let's get her done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we talked about, um, we talked about aircraft, your pilot license. We talked about long distance shooting. Think of anything else? Mm-mm. Can't think of anything else either. You want to, you want to give a plug to the sportsman's club and the rimfire matches while you're, while you're here? Sure. <clears throat> the Rice County sportsman's club which is nine miles north and two miles east of Lyons. Does a rimfire match every third Sunday of the month at nine o'clock in the morning. And we also now do a pistol shoot every first Sunday of the month. And that starts at one o'clock in the afternoon. And does the Sportsman's Club have a website? All of them are rimfire matches. They also shoot um, shotgun every week between March and November. No, well, they have they a shoot they trap. have a, they have a trap, or, but they also actually, have I think they shoot skeet. five stand. Do they they have a skeet too? Don't they? Mm. Yes, <clears throat> but I think that's not. They don't shoot that as often, right? They just do five stand. Right, they shoot five stand the most. <laughs> and then we have a high school. We have three high school shooting trap, and they're competing in a national league, and they just shot in state a weekend or two ago. And so does the sportsman's club have a website? Yes, it's rcsgunclub.com. And can you pay your membership online now? Did you guys finally get that set up? Yes. And how much is that a year? 75 Okay. 
And so, um, and you also have Facebook too, where people can keep yes. up with like Rats matches. County Sportsman's and, Club. Okay. And so, if you want to reach out, and you can hit hit up on the Sportsman's Club. Yeah, the Facebook webpage has a calendar of events on it too. Okay. Is that something you still keep up to date? Yes. Okay, got it. Um. Well, uh, I think we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I think so. You good? You sure? Yep. You got everything out. Yep. Good to go. Of course. <laughs> you you didn't forget anything. No. All right. <coughs> Take her away, my friend. All righty. Well, we appreciate you coming on today. It was a uh, good conversation um, hearing some of the ins and outs of the academy and just uh, your career and policing. And um, we just appreciate you coming on. So you're welcome. Um, thanks uh, for listening to Higher Points, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, go ahead and give it a share, a like, a review on uh, our social medias. Um, we appreciate you all and we appreciate you listening in tuning in every week so uh like um at the higher points on facebook instagram and uh go check out the website and uh have a good week we'll catch up with you guys next time see you later